Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ah, it is really nice to hear that music again. Hi guys, this is Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails podcast, and here we are with a talk episode that I don't really know what to call. It's great to be back in this limited form, and it's great to finally be doing a talk episode with Sean, because it's been absolutely ages. So how are we all doing? I hope we're doing good, because I'm really looking forward to presenting this to you guys. I know it's been about a week since I finished the July Crisis Uh, project so this should tie in nicely with all that i don't really know what to call it because it was kind of i'm not going to say spur of the moment but i mean it wasn't planned as part of the july crisis project to put a talk episode in at the end so i kind of just stuck it in there in the feed as like a, a talk episode all into itself because we don't just talk about the july crisis although we mostly do anyway so I hope you guys enjoy it. There's a few interesting things in there, one of which is the competition that was Sean's idea to launch, in which you could win a copy of the game Verdun, which is a first-person shooter set during World War I. And to find out details about how you could be in with a chance of winning a copy of that game, stick around at the end, and we'll explain to you the terms. It's all very simple. I also finally get around to thanking all the people who have donated to the podcast during the July Crisis Project, mainly because I was just completely overwhelmed by the generosity of people. I was really surprised. It's unbelievably nice to have that email that says, you have a pending donation, and then to open it and be like, oh god, this person's sending me all this money just because I'm doing this. I mean, in retrospect, I'm working, like, I was working flat out for a good while, but even so, I mean, to think that people would send me money because I'm doing my hobby, like, that's crazy. Anyway... Thanks very much, and you'll be bombarded with lots of thank yous, but you'll also hopefully enjoy what is a very enjoyable conversation between two friends. I really enjoyed having Sean on the podcast, and I hope you're able to get something extra out of this. We mostly go over what you've already heard, but in some sense it's nice to hear it again because it kind of wraps up the whole project in a more kind of informal way, because the whole project has been quite formal, I think, because it's been very precise and I tried to have very few mistakes and all that kind of stuff and I tried to do it in a slightly different style and I've called it my podcast thesis and all that jazz so this is kind of a nice relaxed way of kind of closing it out 
So I hope you do enjoy it. Um, Let me know what you think, and I'll be talking to you guys very, very soon. So thanks, and enjoy. The next voices you hear will be mine, and of course, Sean's. Back on the podcast, and my guest as always is Sean. Say hello, Sean. Hello, how are you? Oh, very good, thank you. Very good, yes. Very, very good. Excellent, in fact, and very excited to have you on the podcast mm. for the first time in a very long time. It feels like it's been a year. That's what it feels like. When was the last time? It was when we well, did a the we did, 30 Years War no, episode. I, did we do the 30 Years we did, War? We did one 30 Years okay. War episode. The plan was to do two, and then you were in Sweden by the end of the 30 Years War, uh, so we couldn't do a true. second one. Yeah. yeah. So we kind of just left it at one. Mm-hmm. So here we are, after, here we are yeah. after the mammoth July crisis that oh my goodness. cannot believe is over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we it had a timer on it, you know, it, it expired did. at the yeah. end of July, I just, beginning of August. Yeah, I still I can't believe I managed to keep up with it. That was yeah. a very stressful time. We'll get into that later, but first, in the uh, tradition of this uh, talk style, I think we should start with something that my listeners have not heard in a very, very, very long time. Be fit! If you're looking for ways to support, get in contact with, or inquire about this podcast, BeFit is the best way to do it. Now, Sean, what is BeFit? Uh, B is for blog, where you blog about stuff. Actually, he's using it. I, I can testify to this. There are pictures of it and uh, bibliographies. Mm-hmm. And there's also a, a donate option there. Oh, yeah. So, um, Which some of you have been using very yeah, successfully. We will thank you in person. No. By name later on in the yes, episode. we will. Yeah. So hang on for that. If you want your claim to fame, then do hang on at the end. So the name of the blog is wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie. So E is for email, where you can email me directly, as the name suggests. And mm-hmm. it's always nice to get emails, even if they're just sent from iPhones, and it really doesn't even take that much effort. It's still nice to get them. Yeah, yeah. We can't tell if you send them from an iPhone. Well, it says at the bottom of the email, sent, oh, sent from my iPhone. Really? I, I used to think that people were snobby enough, because this was back when people, like, not many people had iPhones. Yeah. So I used to think it was like people wrote at the end of their wrote email. at the end. Oh. Sent from my iPhone, because I have an iPhone, you don't. But no, it's just no, it's, it's just an automatic thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the uh, email address is wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm. So really simple. Yeah, just very simple, very straightforward. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't mess it up. F yeah, is F, for F is for uh, Facebook. Yes, 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 it is Facebook, where you can uh, like our page. Mm-hmm. Uh, when diplomacy fails, mm-hmm. it's like it's got a little picture of a bomb. It's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, there's also the history podcasters page, where if you just want to get on and chat away with a couple guys that do podcasts. I mean, I say a couple guys. There are a lot of people on there. Loads, Loads so many. Um, when I started there, there was a couple, and now there is just so many I can't even count them. But it's it's, it's very great. exciting, yeah. very very exciting. It's great. I'd love to be like, so who here makes a podcast? And just see how many people are like, me, 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 me. Um, that'd be fun. For some other time, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's the History Podcasts page. And there is the When Diplomacy Fails podcast page as well. So search for both of them and you will find them. And you'll be happy that you found them. Yeah, so I is for iTunes. Mm-hmm. Because even though we were complaining just a minute ago about iPhones coming in, being snobby. Yep. We still use iTunes. So if you want to write a review on there and subscribe to us so you can stay up to date with the podcast, that is absolutely fantastic. That would be great. That would 
really support this podcast more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And you guys have been doing very well. I do keep on looking at mainly the American iTunes store because that's where most people review. It's kind of sad. I kind of look at there like most of the time. Just uh, to see what you guys think yeah, of this it. this guy is like, he will check like at least once a week on all of the different stores oh, just yeah. to see if people have written reviews. So yeah. don't think that it's pointless to write a review. You will be seen. You I will, you'll be seen. You might not know it, but, but I will see you. Oh, another thing as well. I recently looked at the Swedish iTunes store. So all my Swedish listeners, some of whom have been there since the beginning, you know who you are. Um, it's very exciting to see you guys there. So that's nice. Yeah. T. Tell a friend. Yes, not over, even tell a friend. Oh, t- tell someone over No, tea. not even tell someone. Now, tell, it's, Oh yeah, it's tell anything. Tell anything. Like, <laughs> just look at your computer and tell it to listen to When Diplomacy We are desperate, okay? Yeah, yeah. It started off as tell a friend, then yeah. tell someone, and now it's tell anyone. Or no. anything. No, anything. now it's tell anything. anything. Just inanimate yeah. objects, just get in there, tell them to... To listen to this podcast. The people in white coats might come, but while they're taking you away, you that's the time them. to tell them yeah, yeah, that's about it. the podcast. Um, so, that is BeFit. If you've done BeFit, or if you're thinking of doing parts of it, or all of it, thank you so much, because it makes such a big difference to have your guys' support. I've really noticed the support over the past few weeks, especially when I've been like in the depths of stress with the July Crisis Project. So. And like, I didn't help at all, because I was like, let's hang out. And he's like, I got stuff to do. I'm like, let's hang out now. <laughs> So, thank you so much, and thank you also to the people who may not have been doing BeFit, but who are part of my life and who I've been ignoring for the past month and a half, mainly Sean, but also also my family members. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, I I really like how you uh, presented the the entire thing. It was really, like, narrative-driven. Oh, thank Um, you. All the historical facts were there. Mm. At least that I know of, because now you've <laughs> told me them. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, the way you told the story of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. That yeah, Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, that was the way you told that story was just fantastic. Oh, and I, thank you. It was a great way to kick off the the series. Yeah, I think that was that was the prologue episode. It was very important. I got that right because it set the tone for the rest of the episodes. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I was actually I was listening to. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to listen to them as they were released because I thought that that might, I don't know, distract me or whatever. But I'm kind of weird like that with podcast, any kind of podcast specials. Mm. I like to listen to them all in one go, kind of when they're released. So I kind of started listening to them once I'd finished. But then I realized that my brain was just so sick of the era that I had to wait for a little while before I get back to it. So in a few months' time, I'll probably listen to it all the way through. Yeah, and like the your editing was great, and there were only. Only twice do I remember hearing you say the same word. Yeah, 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 I remember myself. I did that as well. Yeah, I was. I was you just of... said and and then and again or something, something really basic like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Or just repeating a sentence. But I think I only <laughs> noticed that twice mm. out of out of all of those episodes. It's fantastic. Not oh, cool. Thank you. Well, um, that's great. It's yeah. good to hear that because Jeepers, when uh, especially in some of the later episodes, I think. I'd say from, like, the end of July, so, like, the 28th to about the 31st, I was literally... Oh, no, no, even, like, from basically from the 28th of July to, like, the 4th or 5th of August, Matt, I was... It was literally every day I was yeah. getting a notification saying the new episode is yeah, out. Yeah. Um, I, was try- I was doing my best to keep up with it, <laughs> but it was just non-stop. But the thing was, as well, like, earlier on in the project, I was 
doing the legwork beforehand. Mm. Like, when some of the episodes, like, say, the ones, like, Away from Vienna and the one where Nikolai Hartwig dies and mm-hmm. the one with the Hoyos mission, they were all done well in advance, like, had about a week mm-hmm. or so of okay. a gap. Okay. But the later, later ones, I'm doing them on the day that they're released. Yeah. And that was just so immensely stressful. And then mm-hmm. once I'd finished that episode, I'd start the one for the next day. Yeah. And yeah. this is, like, in between work and everything else, like, my part-time so, job. Yeah, so... so- just this this guy really worked his butt off to do it and it's just the end result is fantastic it's, oh thank it's you a, it's a testament to your determination so. oh it's a testament to my insanity really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe i did it and like i just like i i still feel kind of tired from it now yeah um, yeah and it's been a whole what we're recording this on the 15th it's um, been a whole yeah. 10 10 days since yeah. the end of it yeah wow it was it was quite th- but I'm so glad I did it because now it's there it's there in the airwaves in the exact yeah, way that I yeah, wanted it to be yeah. I, I I think what I really appreciated was while you were telling the story you were taking the time to go out and and fill out the backgrounds for all of the states yeah. that were involved so finding out about Serbia and its history mm. and its recent history and, and and how it's it's underground organizations formed mm. and to that little correlation with how the uh the italians took over libya and had that inspired yeah that sort of, yeah uh the, the the movements that took off in serbia it's uh it was interesting to see especially when you went through all the other nations as well oh, thank you um it's not you could have told the story without it but it's just really nice to have that extra filling mm. so. I see I see the interesting thing about the profile episodes is that if you listen to the introduction i claim that i'm going to do a profile on every single power that was in it and I ended up only doing three because by the time I got to Russia I was just like, like in the, fairness the Russian one was the best <clears throat> one oh really Russia yeah I think Russia once I listened to that episode I thought Russia were the coolest country <laughs> yeah you really did I was like <laughs> I was adamant that the Russians were the good guys and that they were just mm. so much cooler than their communist yeah. current version Mm. Uh, so, but I wanted to get. I really wanted to get the Serbian one out because it had never really been kind yeah, of communicated yeah, and before. That, that needed that needed. And to the Austria-Hungary one was important to know so that you knew what Austria was going through. And I think Russia, I really wanted to get out as well because, because it would have been yeah, it, the plan was after doing the Russian profile episode to do one on France and then one on Germany and then one on Britain and then one on the Ottomans and one on Italy, kind of smaller ones. Yeah. So that yeah. would have been like eight profile episodes altogether, which is crazy when you think about it because i spent so much time anyway like i don't know how i thought i was going to have enough time yeah um but that's kind of why i said that i was going to do loads of profile episodes and the profile episodes they kind of just they stopped after russia (laughs) i actually had gotten part way through the french episode there's like eight pages done on the french profile episode but i just couldn't get the time to get it out well in fairness uh i didn't notice because the, the the you actually had to fill out more during the the later episodes yeah. just so that that we'd understand mm. so uh especially when you were talking about britain yeah you weren't just talking about britain you were having to explain why britain was in its situation yeah at the same time as giving its relation to, to mm. the current events i think when i started i was afraid that when i did the actual see what i didn't want to do was on each episode that came out on that day i didn't want to spend a long time talking about background information mm. so that's why i figured a profile episode would be useful yeah because it would save me having to do that and yeah. i could just talk to the listeners as if they know exactly what's going on but it ended up working okay even though i didn't I wasn't able to release one on every single power. Yeah. 
So, so from this fantastic kickoff, <laughs> and then following through the the days as it happened, yeah, for the the assassination and the fallout from that, I that was probably the most enjoyable part for me because the rest of from there it just yeah. became nitty gritty negotiations mm. and miscommunications. From before that, everything was up in the air. Everything was really exciting, and you just really captured the whole confusion and momentum oh. of of the Austria-Hungarian reaction, hmm. and gauged it really well so that it really did feel like Russia and Germany and France were just completely oblivious to what was going on in Austria-Hungary. Yeah, well, they really were. Like Austria-Hungary is just like looking at it. The way, like, I had an idea going into it at the start about what Austria Hungary was going to be like because I, I knew, I knew going into it that they had a certain amount of responsibility to share for what happened, but I had no idea how incredibly incompetent they really were. Yeah. Like, it's incredible to see the amount of mistakes that their statesmen made, like Berchtold declaring war on the 28th of July before his state is ready at all for war or before public opinion is ready at all for war yeah. is an obvious one. But even just the fact that it took them so long to respond, yeah. like the whole idea of the the fait accompli policy that was in, that Germany wanted Austria to do, which which basically meant wrap this up quickly, guys. Yeah. Um. Instead of doing that quickly, and that's why the blank check was issued. Was, yeah. Was... Yeah. It was the blank check was issued to kind of support Austria in the course that it was going to take, which yeah. Germany hoped would be a fast response. <laughs> um. In other words, like an occupation of Belgrade. Which, like, later on was... Became the halt in Yeah, exactly, yeah. But it's just amazing to me that Stefan Tiza, the Hungarian minister-president, could have had such an impact on it. And no, yeah. one, no one knows his name. You ask people, okay, so the Austrian Archduke was assassinated on the 28th of June, but Austria didn't declare war until the 28th of July. Why not? They'd be like, mm, I don't know. No one knows who Stefan Tiza yeah, is. Yeah, and in fairness, I didn't know until I listened to this podcast. In fairness, I didn't know until I researched and did this podcast. Really? Okay. Yeah. okay. Even even in the, the the interesting thing as well, what I loved about this July Crisis project was after investigating it, and I said this in my conclusion, how wrong I was compared to the July Crisis uh, episode I did that was like an hour long that I released as part of the World War One special over a year ago. Mm. So completely different um, yeah. to what I thought happened. Yeah. It just goes to show, like, the material that was out back then, a lot of it was the same as it is now, so it was, like that's not an excuse for me to use. Yeah. It was more the case back then because I wasn't investigating it as heavily. I had these preconceived notions of what was going on, so I kind of just went with them yeah. more than anything else. Like, I went with the and Germany... In, and in fairness, the reason we have those preconceived ideas is because our textbooks in schools pretty much tell us that's what happened yeah pretty much and even even nowadays um like most people in most countries will assume that this is the way the germany started that philosophy is rampant in the historical consensus well at least at least in everywhere but germany probably well yeah i mean we're this is what struck me i think my dad said this because he said he heard it somewhere on the radio i think because uh rte the irish television station was doing this special on world war one as well radio television yeah that's what it stands for and <laughs> um, it was and one of the historians on it was saying that we are the first generation who will not attribute blame solely to germany for the start of the first world war which i thought was interesting because in a way it suited what i had come to my conclusions in in the mm. july crisis special yeah because it is true, it's not all Germany's fault. It's not even all Austria's fault. Everyone is equally to blame. 
the two books that I drew on the most, the first of which was uh, Sean McNeekin's book, July 1914, and the other one was Christopher Clarke's book, The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914. See, I thought, I saw those two books sitting on your shelf. I mm-hmm. thought The Sleepwalkers was like a zombie sci-fi book. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was like, why are those two sitting on top of each other? <laughs> yeah, they they were very, very important. They were like my, my Bible for this project. So oh, okay. I very much drew on them. I drew on other ones as well. There was this other one, there's this other book by Thomas Oat, I think. Um, it's called just uh, July 1914 or something, or the July Crisis or something like that. But it wasn't out until like the fifth or sixth of July of this year, so I couldn't get it okay. in time. Okay. But I might, I might get it still because in my masters I'll probably be looking at this again. Yeah, but it was, it was just interesting to see um, how these two books contradict everything I thought I knew about it before. And for a while I was resilient to changing my preconceived notions, but. The, the week or two I had to research the limited amount that I could beforehand, before I actually really got into it, I was able to kind of decide, okay, I can either do this project with the ideas that I already have and try and find a way to back them up and try and present it as though, like, Ozak was right kind of thing, or I can come to this with an open mind and just see what I can learn from this yeah, and yeah. see if there's anything new here. And there really was, like, I was amazed at how, how wrong I was yeah, and how completely different the whole situation was and yeah, how it was... Germany really, like, you can almost almost feel sorry for Germany being pushed into the war. And a, a lot of, I mean, I saw a couple comments saying that your German sympathies really do shine through. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we all know you love Bismarck and we all know that if Bismarck was... 50 years later that war would have easily just gone the other way oh definitely yeah because the first thing bismarck would have done would have been like is this to germany's benefit no so it's not going to happen and he would have done everything in his power he would have been the one there was a suggestion floating around in, in the kind of the last days of peace well let's just give our navy to britain so that it has no cause at all for concern Tirpitz, of course was completely against it being the grand admiral of the german (laughs) naval naval cabinet but um the German Chancellor Bethmann Hallwig was very much up for it, but he wasn't able to persuade Kaiser Wilhelm II to go for it either because Wilhelm, of course, loved his fleet more than he loved yeah. this idea. I mean, it would have been hell of a gesture for which, Germany yeah, to make. And it would have gone, yeah, we're not going to attack those French borders, which is the only flimsy reason you have to protect France. Yeah, um, yeah. Now you have our ships, we can't even attack it. But I think I think the real problem with Germany was the strict adhesion to the Schlieffen Plan. I think that was their own undoing. Yeah, it and really if was. They had reacted to the situation instead of running a plan for a simulation where it was all out war. Mm. They they could have they could have been seen as the victim or at least not as the the bad guy as the aggressor. Yeah. The villain, even. Yeah, but um, even it even comes down to simple facts. Like, why didn't Germany just do what Russia was doing? Why didn't Germany just keep on mobilizing in, in secret? Yeah, well, well, not even in secret, just not declaring it. Like, yeah. Russia didn't make... When it did generally mobilize on the, uh, on the 30th of July, when Russia did declare general mobilization, it didn't keep it a secret. But what it did do was it didn't send a telegram to all the countries of Europe announcing that it was generally mobilizing. Yeah, it just did... So people had to find out themselves. So what if Germany had just done that and prepared like everyone else? But the reason why it didn't just do that wasn't because Germany was the aggressor or because it was the belligerent um, devil country of Europe. (laughs) It was because because Bethmann Hallweg, the Chancellor, 
had this bizarre notion of what um, the legal way to wage war was, and he thought they Germany respected the Dutch too much. Is what it was. <laughs> they they respected that Hague Treaty. Oh it was yeah, like, it was like these are the rules of war. You must respect. Yeah. Them. Well, as far as Bethmann Holbeck was concerned, it was the 1907 Hague Convention that said in order to wage war, you must declare it. So Bethmann and, and mobilization is pretty much waging yeah, war. Yeah, and Germany's. Um, just like Russia's period preparatory to war, which we'll get into in a little while, yeah. um, Germany's immediate danger of war, it was going to lead to war no matter what happened. Like that because it had been set up to facilitate war, basically, just yeah. like mobilization yeah. was. Like the two things were basically interchangeable. It was just a case of what we called them. The reason why Bethmann Holweg declared war was because he figured the only way to continue on in Germany's course was to declare war. The only thing that Russia hadn't done was declare war. In every other sense, it was at war. Yeah, yeah. So, in that sense, Russia declared war first, but, of course, it didn't, because yeah. it didn't sign the all-important document and that place says, itself. hey, we declare war. It'd be interesting to see if Russia had declared war. Uh, would France have felt obliged to also declare war? And hmm. would, Italy ha- would Italy and the Ottomans have had to have stepped in straight away? yeah. That's that's interesting because the whole thing about the Triple Alliance was that it was supposed to be defensive. So Italy was able to bow out because it said that Germany had declared war. Yeah, and that's that's you know that's something that I'm sure the Germans really read it. Yeah, straight away we're like, well, that we we declared war because they weren't declaring it. Yeah, we're, we're doing this out of defense. Yeah, <laughs> that's that they, is pretty much why it happened. Yeah, they haven't declared it, but we're just putting it out in the open that they mm. are going to declare war on us. Yeah, but because they did that, Italy and Romania and other countries in the Balkans, like Bulgaria, who were leaning towards the idea of the central powers, they were able to absolve themselves of the conflict for the moment and say, okay, well, the terms of the treaties that we signed with you are now violated because you declared war first. Yeah. So, in in this way, like, Bethman's jumping of the gun seems absolutely insane when you think about all the things he sacrificed. Not yeah. only did he place yeah. himself on the historical guillotine, but he also ruined all the years of diplomacy that... With, with Britain and, yeah, yeah, everything. Like, we Just can definitely... Yeah, we can definitely fault Bethman for doing that, stating that because he declared war first is proof that Germany willed the war and wanted it is another argument entirely. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say Germany wanted that war. And we can definitely see by uh, by how the war panned out. These are the kind of things that are never really stated. They're just kind of accepted. Like the Schlieffen plan itself is a plan that exists because Germany is in a, is in a weak position. Mm-hmm. Like why else would it have to invade France through Belgium? Like, come on, that's a terrible, terrible plan it's risky and it's fraught with loads and loads of problems not least the fact of like offending foreign opinion and the fact that belgium is very defensible yeah very very defensible because it's such a small country it just lines itself with forts um of course it's a bad plan but the fact was this was the only plan that they had yeah the other plan that they had i discovered that there was this um, planned for a limited war against the Eastern Front, just the East, just Russia. It had been abandoned in 1903. So, really? fr- yeah, but okay. like in 1904 was effectively when the Schlieffen Plan began to take to take shape. But well, would you say that the Schlieffen Plan would be a proof towards Germans' willing of this war that it couldn't see a war without going to war with both, without declaring it, without going forward by itself? 
Because if that's true, if their if their idea of war was always to go in total war, mm. then then surely some sort of blame should be assigned to them more so than everyone else. Well, yes, that's true, but at the same time, Russia was the exact same. Yeah. And so was yeah. France. No one because the, the, the alliance system was a weird was a weird thing. It was like it was set up to deter the idea of war, but also it suggested that in the event of war, the war would be total. Yeah. Because unless people wanted to forego the alliance treaties that they had worked so hard for, there was no way that the war was going to be limited. In order for France to bow out of the war, it had to sacrifice its two decades of negotiations it had done with Russia. Mm-hmm. And if Austria wanted to bow out of the war, it had to sacrifice its four decades of war that it had made with Germany. So it was just incomprehensible to to suggest that it could have been limited. And this was why Sa- Sergei Sazanov, the Russian foreign minister, tried to insist that mobilization didn't mean war. This was why um, Bethman Holweg got so offended, because if you're mobilizing against one member of an alliance bloc, then of course the other guy is going to get offended. Yeah. And of course yeah. he's going to get worried. It's going because, to go to total war. Yeah, yeah, because there's no other way. No powers thought that they would be in a position to mm. not have to wage a complete mm. war against mm. one alliance bloc or the other. Now there was little... There was little uh, wild cards, such as Britain or, in the Central Powers case, Italy, because Italy wasn't thought to be very strong because yeah. of the Austrian Tyrol region that it, that the Italians coveted for irredentist reasons. But the fact that both sides thought that an alliance bloc war would be the war that would happen was very much prevalent in the minds of uh, their militaries. Uh, everybody, yeah. Nowadays, we have security councils. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have, like, I don't know if Ireland has one, but definitely America and, and Britain have security councils. A hundred years ago, those security councils were called war councils. Yeah, and you had and, ministers for war as yeah, well. Yeah, ministers for war. Now, we might have changed the name, but they do the same thing. Mm, they, they do, yeah. They orchestrate and decide where best to use military strength. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. You see, there's a very big cultural difference as well. I remember in my sipping acronym that I that I kind of disagree with now, but in a way, it still kind of makes sense because the G part of the sipping acronym was the glorification of war, mm. and in a way, that still holds true because looking at some of the social analysis of the pre-war era especially in the upper nobility of, say, Britain or in France, where Mm. they upheld the cavalry kind of to a very, very high degree, even though cavalry would later prove very useless against trench trench warfare. It's just interesting to see how completely completely unlike our culture, their culture was. Yeah, well, definitely the First and Second World War shook our culture up enough to, to make it completely different. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. It also... It kind of, like, it's the cliche, obviously, that Europe hadn't really fought a proper war since Napoleon, so it was not within the consciousness of the European powers at the time. But that kind of, I don't like those kind of things because they kind of, like, it's almost like when people say them, they're trying to absolve people of the responsibility of launching the war. Like, people knew that war was going to be horrible. The very fact that the Tsar cancelled general mobilization on the 29th of July because he said, I will not be responsible for a monster slaughter... Like, that suspects he definitely foresaw what was coming. But even he couldn't have known. Because, like, they they weren't unaware that they had cannons that could fire miles away. They weren't unaware that they were testing gases that could pour out people's lungs. Mm. They, mass production 
and mass murder yeah. is what they were capable of. Mm. They they were there approving these things, going, yes, we should get guns like that. Yes, we should yeah. get cannons like this. Yes, we should train our men to use them. Mm. Because if we're if there's a war, we want to be able to kill the enemy quickly. Yeah. What they didn't realize is if both of you have that, you murder each other so fast that you, neither of you make any gains. That's You're just ver- yeah, all dead. It's very, very true. I'm reminded of this, uh, this one of the last pages of uh, Christopher Clark's book, The Sleepwalkers, how he was describing how the French military had just acquired this cannon and how through tests of this cannon, the French military concluded that, oh, this cannon will wreak terrible, terrible damage on people and will result in terrible wounds like crushed bones and torn uh, torn body parts and all that horrible stuff mm-hmm. and people in the French military were like oh we should we should get rid of we should get rid of the, we should outlaw the use of these guns and this was in like 1910 or something yeah. we yeah. should outlaw the use of this guns so that so that no country should be in possession of them and we should contact the Hague convention and make sure that no country's allowed to even buy them or make them and then the higher ups in the French military were like but a but a country has a right to defend itself and and if and if one country has it then and this this uh, weapon will make sure that no one wants to fight us. And they wrote up a grand report and then congratulating the engineers on the construction of this cannon and how it was really great that they'd made such a great weapon and how it will deter everyone else from war. And then Christopher Clark made the point that like fifty or sixty miles across the border, the Germans were doing the exact same thing. Yeah, trying trying to accept the fact that this weapon would kill people, but concluding that it was good for the sake of the safety of the country and that it would deter yeah. people from fighting and that a country had the right to defend itself. So the, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into in some sense because they had this idea that well, war was going to be an adventure. God's on our side. We're going to fight this war with all these grand weapons that we've been perfecting for a long time yeah even though within that idea they didn't have that much of a grasp on how damaging exactly their weapons would be but they also had the catastrophic ignorance of the fact that their enemies possessed pretty much the exact same technology i guess they just forgot that people die when that happens yeah forgot that you know, people get wounded, they come back missing body parts. Yeah, yeah, it almost is yeah. like they forget that because there is no kind of concept at the start of any danger until the the real serious casualties start piling up. There's almost the idea that it's an adventure and it's a great thing to die for one's country as if dying isn't the end kind of thing. Yeah, and and I'd say when the, the generals on both start, sides started getting back their battle reports mm. coming in with... We've lost 14,000 men this morning. And they're just looking at it like, that's insane. This morning? They're like, yeah, cross the line. Well, call up the reserves. Put them back into the trenches. Yeah. You know, it's... It's just incomprehensible. Like, as much as the Tsar said he would not be responsible for a monstrous slaughter, his idea of a monstrous slaughter was no way near close to what it was actually yeah. going to happen. Yeah. But yeah, so we could we can in some way attribute the fact that people were in ignorance of what was going to happen. We can ex- you can use that fact to explain how the war was glorified and people didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. But at the same time, people did know that a general war was going to not be wonderfully great and short yeah. of any suffering at all. Especially in the German case, which is interesting. Even within the Schlieffen plan itself, mm-hmm. which like considering what we know, the fact that. 
France held on and Russia collapsed in 1917. It's especially interesting. Malta expected the um, Schlieffen plan to result in a quick defeat of France and then a relatively long drawn out war against Russia. And he predicted that if Britain was on the side of the Franco-Russian Entente, then Britain would be blockading Germany and Germany would be in a race to defeat Russia and then turn its attention towards Britain before the uh, blockade strangled Germany completely. Do you you think... Germany had any intentions on land grabbing in Russia or France or even Britain. See, it's kind of hard to say. You can look at the um, you can look at the later peace treaty between Germany and Russia in 1917 um, to see whether or not Germany really wanted land grabs because what Germany and Austria demanded of Russia in order to force Russia out of the war. It rapidly, like, it seriously infringed upon Russia's sovereignty and took lots of Russian land away. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, and and at the start, there was, um, there was like, ideas where... where They were trying to say, we w- we're not interested in taking land. And then when they were asked, can you guarantee that you won't take land? Yeah. They couldn't give guarantees. Yeah, and then he couldn't give guarantees for France's colonies either. For them and like the, the like the needless little places in Africa. Yeah, that, I wish he'd said instead of I can't guarantee that. I'd be like, I don't know. I haven't asked them. You know, I haven't <laughs> asked. I, literally, you write down a list. I'll go ask them. And yeah, I'll come back in in a day or so. It would have been far smarter to do. But even the fact that he asked about Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, asked about the. Um, I love how you said it. The way the way. Okay, if you listen to his podcast. The German makes his presentation and everybody's yeah. quite happy. Yeah. And then he mentions one thing, like, we will even respect blah de blah de blah yeah. And then the British are like, no, hang on, wait a second. Yeah. If you'll only respect that, will you respect this? Yeah. No. Will you respect this? You don't know. Will you respect <laughs> this? Now, hang on. You've just gone from a really nice presentation to sounding like you're about to start an entire war based on land grabs. Yeah. Well, that what you're talking about there is the part where um, the... German ambassador to Britain said that he would res- that Germany would respect the integrity of the Netherlands, and, and Sir Edward Grey like, was like, "Well, what about Belgium?" And he was like, "Oh, oh well, I can't guarantee, uh, can't guarantee Belgium." <laughs> He's like, like, "What about <laughs> France's colonies?" I don't really think we can guarantee them either. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you even bring that up? <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a completely needless thing to bring up, but yeah. it, it illustrated to Sir Edward Grey the the story, the picture that he had painted for him by, by the, the French, French and yeah. Russian brushes. That Germany wanted conquest above mm, all, mm. and Germany certainly may have wanted conquest, and its its well, later it's treaties certainly wanted yeah, conquest. its later treaties with Russia illustrated the fact that it did want conquest. But we can't really judge the Germany in 1917 as the Germany in 1914 mm. because the Germany in 1917 was a Germany hardened by three years of tough war. Really it was war. desperate and to... I think the whole of Europe was in, in the same sort of boat. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, definitely was. So I think we're moving along nicely in 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 the actual story. We've managed to get to where Britain and, and Germany are negotiating. Mm. And, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question now. Yes. What do you think about Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary? What do you think about his proposals in the last minute for neutrality? Well, the the one where he tried to to guarantee the French neutrality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the ones that got just, Germany really excited. It just, yeah, the ones that uh, were actually really fun to listen. If you listen to it, you can actually get that sense, the way you present it, you get that sense of excitement and, and joy. It really feels yeah. like everybody's <laughs> going out and having parties and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, it just, it shows complete and utter ignorance by... 
Britain because mm. they they can't force without mm. declaring war on France. Yeah. They can't force France yeah. to not declare war. Definitely on not. Definitely not. Like basically, what they were offering by saying we'll guarantee French neutrality is we will declare war on France if they go to war with you. Pretty much, which was the offer. Yeah. So. I don't think Sir Edward Grey realised what he was saying yeah. when he said that. It's almost like he didn't realise that Germany was hanging on his every word. Yeah. At all. Like, literally, if you side with them, we can't win. And that's why it was kind of hilarious when he got caught out later on and he got called in front of the king and had to explain for himself. Yeah. And he was like, there must be some misunderstanding. <laughs> and, you know, I love the, the monarchies. Yeah. The monarchies here, I think, were the unsung heroes of peace because they all they talk to each other like literally their brothers mm. all talking to each other with you know because it really it and i know you'd say oh it's a family war it's not a family war it was war that the politicians wanted but the monarchies wanted mm. was definitely not war yeah definitely not certainly the czar initially didn't want it um, and i think had we had absolute monarchy at that point i think a war would definitely have been avoided especially because the assassination of the the Archduke, yeah. Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, monarchical principle. Everyone would have said, well, Serbia was wrong. Yeah. They shouldn't have killed an absolute monarch. And the interesting thing there is that this ties back to the Russia-Japanese war where it saw, in the, in the aftermath of it, there was a load of revolutions and the, the Russian parliament or Duma was set up in 1905. If that war hadn't happened, Russia may well have still been a massive autocracy but if that was still the case and Russia never suffered its loss Britain may not have sided with the Entente at all mm. so there's loads of what ifs that yeah. you can go along with yeah. but yeah I agree with you if the if Russia was still an autocracy not bounded by its uh, commitments to the kind of limited powers of the statesman that had recently come into the come into the theatre of yeah, Russian politics I'm not politics. saying democracy is bad but <laughs> certainly having a ruler that has been trained from birth to be a ruler yeah. is a good thing, mm. you know, uh, because nowadays we elect people who, who yeah, they've gone in to do some training, but it, it, they only get to rep, rep. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...present us for a limited time, and they really, they just, they seem to struggle, you know? We always have governments coming out with their tail between their legs because they've, they've managed to not do well in the last four, eight years they've been in power. <laughs> and... And it just, it seems like a, a constant cycle. And if, if we had someone who was just in power all the time, mm-hmm. it would be like Sir Alex Ferguson for Manchester United football, <laughs> if anybody knows the reference here. Oh, no. He'd be given 20 years to run at it and get the team to a point where it really was one of the best teams in football. So Russia should just have had a 20 years R then. A 20, like 20 years, I think, is an appropriate amount of time for a ruler to rule because it means that they actually get to implement plans that they have tried to implement mm-hmm. like you could say yes you could say that autocracy may like might have prevented russia from going in but at the same time you have to remember looking at it in detail i was kind of taken aback by how conflicted the character of Tsar Nicholas II seems he's because he's a pacifist that's forced yeah, to go to war is what he is it pretty much but on, on the one hand he surrounds himself with kind of Ministers, warlike yeah, people, yeah, who who espouse this kind of Balkan rhetoric, and they want to have a proud Russian Empire and everything. And on the other hand, he does not want war at all, and mm. he doesn't seem to connect the dots between the fact that these ministers are going to want war to fulfill their ideas. An important example of this is the Dardanelles, the Straits, Constantinople, and the whole yeah. fulfillment of the Russian idea. Mm. Mm. Um. How were the how were the Russian statesmen going to ensure that Russia acquired this area if not through war? Yeah. So yeah. Tsar Nicholas was putting himself in a strange position. He he was he, his position was unlike that of the certainly of the British king, but also of the German Kaiser. For that reason, the German Kaiser, I suppose you could say that he had conf- conflictions in his character because. Like, he'd certainly, he'd make pretty famous outbursts, and then a few days later he'd be like, oh, I didn't mean that at all, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. so... Oh my goodness, the, how Austria manipulated the, the young Kaiser? I yeah. I say young, he's probably in his late 30s now. Oh, was, he was in his 40s at that stage. Late 40s, yeah. okay, yeah. Well, he's still a young Kaiser to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, they, how they managed to, to manipulate his sorrow yeah. into making commitments that mm-hmm. would later but really you see the interesting thing is they knew that because of the character of the kaiser being what it was mm-hmm. they knew that the best time to approach him would be while he was still upset about franz ferdinand's death yeah that I, was that yeah. was the best chance and i really love like the way you describe poor Pat franz ferdinand mm-hmm. he being the like the rejected son because of his uh what was his wife his wife was sophie she was like she was from a relatively wealthy Czech family, but she wasn't the nobility that the Habsburgs were expected to marry. Okay. So, so because was, of that... She was uh, actually trying to avoid inbreeding. That's nice. Yeah. Good old Franz Ferdinand trying to avoid inbreeding and being uh, punished for it by yeah. his family. Yeah, but I really love how uh, Wilhelm really, you know, extends his... Yeah, almost takes the couple under his wing because yeah. he foresees that in the future they'll have to work together. Yeah, as... as pretty much co-rulers mm-hmm. yeah so i can i can understand his mourning as as really like it i did feel i felt so bad for him yeah the way you were describing their personal relationship mm. to each other it, it, it was really understandable yeah 
I wanted to, I really wanted to capture the reactions of the foreign countries to what had happened. Yeah. Because it's often suggested that it, like, war was inevitable. And this is a key question. Was the First World War inevitable? I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, do you think the First World War was inevitable? Well, there were certainly tons and tons of weapons manufacturers that mm-hmm. were edging on a war. Yeah. That, you know, military complexes all set up in those countries, you know. People were looking for a way to mass produce weapons so that they can make that quick buck mm. off it. And for that to happen, a war has to facilitate that production. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I think the the way industrialization took weaponry, like before it was like a blacksmith and an armorer, mm. and they would work together to make weapons, and it would be a real burden. But when you can rack out just rifles day after day after day, mm-hmm. Without any slowdown, without any, like, all you got to do is get the minerals and resources and you're good to go. They needed to sell those because the price of those would just drop into the ground yeah. because they just had surplus. Mm-hmm. I'd say a war from their perspective was inevitable and getting those politicians on their side. Mm-hmm. So I'd say there were many dinners and many parties thrown by weapons manufacturers. Oh, absolutely. To try get politicians on side for yeah. war style mm-hmm war type ideas yeah absolutely definitely there's no doubt about that there was certainly uh like the war lobbies that existed in the countries and the war parties that would have listened to them they went hand in hand and there's no question of the fact that once the war actually happened it made a lot of people very very wealthy yeah yeah but what what if what about the idea of deterrence what about building up what about the idea that I'm only building up loads of arms because my neighbor is doing the same? Building up loads of arms, yeah. That's that. That's a, that's an idea called neorealism, where you can't trust your neighbor, and your neighbor can't trust you. So the only way to in like to ensure your own safety other. is to deter him I'd from say force. That, again, that's another weapons manufacturer's idea that, mm. that managed to infiltrate into politics. Yeah. Because, oh yeah, no, you need to protect yourself because you can't trust those guys. Here, buy all my guns. I just made them today and they're just going to sit in a warehouse unless you buy them, so. Hey, they've been saying stuff about you. You better, you better go and get you your guns. You better get your guns. <laughs> Got lots of guns here for you. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I really do think it was just, um, it was just the idea of making money mm. was too tempting for some people. Yeah. So they were the big influence on, on I, I'd say... If let's let's put it this way, right? Do you think war could have been avoided in in the course of the July crisis after Gavrilo Princip shot Franz Ferdinand? Literally, when I was listening to it, I was like, "This is all razor wire stuff." Mm-hmm. Like, literally, it has to follow this exact path because if it strays just slightly, we go to peace, mm-hmm. or we go to just uh, Aus- uh, Austria-Hungary Serb war, mm-hmm. and it's just. No, no, no. You're just dodging around all these little obstacles that would have prevented war yeah. just to get to war. And mm. it was, it was, if that was their intention, it was fabulously orchestrated. Yeah. It could have just ended straight away. It could have just gone straight to a halt in Belgrade. Mm-hmm. If Austria hadn't lingered mm. and waited around that month and just moved straight away, it would have been passed off as a war. Yeah. Just as a, the Austro-Serb war. So and the entire reason for it would have been Franz Ferdinand. Everyone would know about it. Mm-hmm. But then you're saying, well, wouldn't we then have a more devastating war later on? Because no one would learn the lessons of war. Yeah. Yes, maybe. Or we would realize that these guns are getting ridiculous because now I've got a like a submachine gun and a massive cannon. <laughs> and I've got nothing to do with it. I've got nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, this 
this cannon here I've built, I can put in Dover and it can land shells at the front lines of, you know, Belgium. I don't want to do that. <laughs> That's ridiculous, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think... So yeah, I, I think the, the, the arms race would have slowed down um, if, the, if it had gone into the 30s. I think the, what would have happened would be the Irish Civil War in 1914-1915. Yeah. Which would have been devastating for our country, so thank God for the First World War. Because what it did was it took tons of our young fighting men, which would have fought all of our yeah. civil wars from mm-hmm. then, and just sent them away and got them all killed. <laughs> <laughs> like they didn't come back they didn't come back and they didn't have any fight left in them the ones that did come back yeah. they didn't want to have to fight a civil war they didn't want to have their nationalism or any of those ideals because out there when they saw shells destroying people mm. it didn't matter if you were French or if you were German or if you were British or Australian you still die the same you still bleed the same Yeah. and so they came back with nothing left in them that's true, but then at the same time we had the Irish War of Independence from 1919 to 1921. Yeah. And then the Irish Civil War from 22 to 23. But again, those were very, like, I'd, like in the scale of what civil wars are nowadays, Yeah, they weren't huge. Mm. And on the scale of what civil wars were in America, the American Civil War, wow. And in terms of the... Well, in like, terms of numbers, yeah. in terms of devastation, our civil war really was, was localized to just a few regions... And yeah, everyone was on on edge, and and there were raids happening here and there. But in in terms of numbers, it was pretty slow, and then ramped up in the last year. It mm. wasn't it wasn't as bad. So thank God for the First World War. Well, and I know that sounds bad, but <laughs> it 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 worked out really good for our country. Well, like regardless of how how history actually panned out, there's no doubt that if the First World War had not happened, Britain would have been thoroughly occupied with the Irish question yeah. for the foreseeable future. And I, I find it really patronising that they call it the question. It's like, it's not a question. <laughs> it's not a question. Well, it was for, for, for British politicians. The question was, do we give them home rule or not? Effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Do we yeah. leave uh, Ireland to its own devices or... Is there a way, like, in, in other words, there was Irish questions rather than a question. Yeah, yeah. Because there were so many issues that had to be resolved, and it split opinion so completely. But certainly that would have kept Britain isolated with its own affairs mm-hmm. for some time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so, even if the war, do you think if the war started a year later, Britain trying to maintain peace in Ireland would have well, that depends. been able to join? It depends. If what, the war had started in 1915. If 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 by war you're talking about a war between just Germany and Russia or a war between France no, and Germany. No, the same setup. Franz okay. Ferdinand returns the year later and gets assassinated. <laughs> just doesn't even learn his <laughs> He doesn't, doesn't get the idea yeah. that people are trying to kill him and comes back the next year. Okay, well, if, if it happened the exact same way as it happened in 1914, then... I mean, it depends. It depends on how ferocious the war between Britain and Ireland, let's say, was at this stage. Mm. And whether or not the fact that Germany had violated Belgian neutrality would be sufficient to uh, make Ireland decide, okay, we need to stop fighting Britain and fight Germany instead. But in reality, I think that Britain and Ireland would have been simply too caught up in their own affairs to involve themselves. And as well as that, we can't predict how the war between the two factions within Ireland would have gone how long it would have lasted etc especially if that civil war the way it, the way it was the irish versus the irish yeah okay? which side do britain take 
Yeah, well, that's and because the thing. <laughs> they can't take a side, would that then result in the civil war spreading to Britain itself? Mm, yeah, well, the, some historians have had suggested that it was going to be a British civil war because it split political opinion so much. And don't forget, there was a lot of yeah. Irish people and so spread if, across Britain. If the British had decided, right, we'll side with the Unionists, the second they moved troops to support the Unionists. They would have had their own civil war on yeah. their hands mm. with people trying to resist, with armies trying to resist being deployed on the Unionist side. Yeah, mm. it would have been just a generally awful situation. But I, w- I want to move on from from Britain because I want to move on to another question, alternative history question for okay. you. Okay. Um, say say uh, let, let's look at Russia in this case. Say. Yeah. The badass. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Say, Gabriel... Russia, you lost something in, in communism. You really did. Oh, it didn't just lose. It lost a whole lot of stuff in communism. But say Gavrilo Princep did not kill Franz Ferdinand. Okay. Say say Franz Ferdinand, the, all that happened was that first assassination attempt. And then he ended up turning. He didn't he turn. He didn't turn. He went straight. He went straight along and he avoided Gavrilo uh, Princep you know altogether. What I think? If they hadn't decided, oh, we took a wrong turn and then stopped... Yeah, it would have been had, fine. <laughs> yeah, if they had taken that turn and just driven on down the end of that road... Yeah. They probably would have avoided getting shot. Mm. Yeah, it was really the amazing fact was that they stopped dead in right front of him. Right in front yeah. of him. And he's like, well, I feel obliged to shoot yeah, him Yeah, I almost can't not shoot him because he's <laughs> right in front of me. But yeah. the interesting thing was that Princep was following the itinerary that was relevant earlier on, like... Technically, it was now um, it was now outdated by the fact that but, that they were aware he was trying to be yeah, and so the itinerary had been changed. Mm-hmm. But because that one cop car at the front, he's, he's so lovely, Franz Ferdinand. He's like, let's go to the hospital, yeah, and, and talk to the people that that were yeah, that were oh, but yeah. So say say he say he had survived, he had gone home, he'd been like, I was nearly killed in in Sarajevo, and I'm like, oh, good grief, what a terrible thing to happen. Regardless of what would have happened to Austria-Hungary then, how it would have reformed or reacted or how the, the Hungarian question would have been mm-hmm. solved, yeah. what do you think would have happened with Russia? What do you think Germany and Russia would have done to each other in the years to come? Do you think there would have been the, the whole preventative war from the German perspective that has long been espoused by historians who claim that Germany wanted the war in 1914 because if it didn't have it, then Russia would be soon uncontainable? No. I think the monarchies would have held in check. Mm. I think the monarchies would have maintained the pieces as long as possible. Yeah. But what I do think is that the rising that happens, the communist rising, Mm. would have actually warranted international response. Mm. That it would have been put down by the other monarchies to maintain the Russian monarchy. I agree with you, yeah. Because certainly if that kind of a rising... Like, first of all, it wouldn't have happened with the ferocity that it did. We're talking about the Russian Revolution, by the way, that overthrew the the Russian monarchy and established communism. If it hadn't happened during war, it probably wouldn't have been as successful because it wouldn't have had as much uh, human suffering to draw upon so that it wouldn't have been as... uh, And it would have had more sympathies among among the European powers to try and put that down on behalf of Russia. Yeah, because Russia had done the same, don't forget, during the... During the 1848 revolutions, Russia had effectively been the policeman of Europe and ensured that in Germany and in Austria that no kind of governments or or institutions were set up that were kind of anathema to the idea of the monarchical principle or the old order. Yeah. But yeah, what I'm trying to get at is 
the idea of the preventative war and I'm trying to almost demonstrate the fact that it's very hard to look at Russia by itself or Germany by itself and state this is where this country would have been if war had not happened. Mm. Because in order to look at Russia and kind of examine where it will be in the future if war hadn't happened, you need to look at Britain and you need to look at Germany. Britain because in 1914, Britain and Russia were very much on different paths despite the fact that the Entente and their mm. and their naval conventions had kind of established them on the same sort of ground. But the reason why this had happened was... Not so much because Britain hated Germany, which has been the common uh, misconception that Britain pursued the the Franco-Russian Entente and tried to get into it and make it a triple Entente because it was afraid of what Germany was doing. The reason why Britain joined the Entente in the first place was because Britain and its policymakers saw the Entente as the chance to uh, address and pacify its two biggest rivals, in this case France, who Britain was a rival with in Africa and in Asia, and Russia, who Britain was perhaps the biggest rival with in, and had been for the past century, really, ever since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, and who had, Britain had been combating itself against since, like, most visibly in the Crimean War, but also through policy and through its trying to contain Russia and its plans of expansion. Mm. So what I'm trying to get at here is the idea that if a war had not happened in 1914... I don't see a war happening for the foreseeable future. Um, And I also see the fracturing of the alliance system that was set in place. And I'll explain why. The first point, you look at Germany and France, and you might think, well, these two countries, they're never, ever going to get along. In a way, you might be right. But the way I see it happening is these two countries, they could only arm themselves to a certain point before it became impossible to maintain or continue with the the Germans and the French both, of course, had their grievances with each other, but you can only arm yourself to a certain point before you can't afford it anymore. And when you get to that stage, you can either decide, okay, we're going to use all this stuff that we have, or you can decide to go along in a policy of detente. And now, it might have been hard for German or French policymakers to imagine this strategy, but perhaps with a bit of give and take influenced by Britain, maybe that would have come about. And... If that had come about, then you could have seen a key reason for the alliance system that that had come into being. You could see that actually coming apart. A lot, uh, like an important thing to remember is just how much the alliance system itself relied upon the Franco-German antagonism. So if that was pacified, it would have made a lot of other things easier to come about. So let's look at, for example, the, the British and the Russian rivalries which had supposedly been pacified by the existence of the Entente. But if you look at the fact that even in 1914, British policymakers were concerned that Russia was not respecting the terms of their treaties in, say, Persia, for example, and they were acting like they owned the place, basically. These were still real concerns. And up until the point that the war itself broke out, there was a growing lobby within Britain that suggested we should stop pacifying Russia, we'd stop appeasing Russia, and we should start combating Russia and the best way to do this is to look to Germany for help. Yeah. And that didn't necessarily mean that they were going to become Germany's best friend. But it did mean that in 1914, because Britain had won the naval race, which is a key point that I didn't know. And I thought like I completely missed like totally in my last special. 
it removes with with the ending of the naval race effectively in Britain's favor. It removes the key point of antagonism between Britain and Germany. Yeah. And when that's gone, Britain has more of a free hand, and it has a reason to kind of bring Germany into its sphere. And of course, as well, this whole policy is being facilitated by the fact that the German Chancellor is very much pro-Britain, and of course, the German Kaiser. You could never like criticize yeah. him and say uh, that he's. He loves Britain. Oh, God, yeah. He, he, like, all of his aspirations are because he loves Britain. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he was effectively in awe of Britain, and he wanted British attention and British affection and all the other stuff. He wanted to be appreciated by Britain. The best yeah. way to get that was to be embark on a good relationship with Britain, and that could have happened. Except he was an idiot, so he thought the way to impress Britain was by impressing it, <laughs> literally, by, like, check out my guns. Yeah. And then Britain was like, holy crap, you've got guns. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's... Yeah, that's very, very true. Very, very accurate, yeah. Yeah, but, like, we, we, we can see this catastrophic misunderstanding of the British psychology throughout history, and with Hitler as well. In many ways, 1914 was like a year of detente, and had the war not broken out, there is a very strong chance that... That detente would have continued. It would have continued, because Britain was facing its own significant problems. It had significant problems with its Russian relationship. France and Germany were spending so much money on arms... France, for example, was... Three years of just mobilizing. Yeah, pretty much. Not mobilizing. It's three-year military bill required that it recruit 90% of its manpower, which is crazy, and it's not sustainable. It was not sustainable to recruit such a high amount of manpower, and German planners would have recognized that in a few years... They're just going to go back to being a a small French army. Yeah, like, if, if France starts to appreciate the fact that its own... Uh, military spending is not sustainable and Germany at the same time starts to appreciate the fact that okay in a few years Russia is going to be too powerful to contain anyway and a war does not come because preventative war though it was favoured by some in German military circles was definitely not favoured by the Chancellor or Kaiser Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if you add to that as well the fact that in the French political atmosphere um, the French President Raymond Poincaré had taken Russian bribes and Russian money during his presidential race and if you add to that, I know we keep adding stuff to this, but if you add to that the fact that the uh, French pacifist Jean Hoiré, who was who was killed, if you remember, on the eve of war, um, if he managed to survive and ended up forming a kind of government, uh, Joseph Callot, who was part of that whole Callot affair that kept France so occupied. I know there's a lot of ingredients, but here, but bear with me. If you add all that together, what it looks like is a kind of more peaceful France learning from its previous uh, ideas of rearmament and embarking on towards a more detente policy with Germany. And this Germany now, inspired by the fact that it needs to have Britain on side and inspired by the fact that the, the British relationship is bringing bearing some fruit, might decide that the best course for itself, knowing that it can't win a war between France and Russia anymore, if this is in a few years' time, decides to embark on a policy of peace with France itself. And if that happens then the very alliance system itself comes crumbling down. So that is how the alliance system was on the edge of ending at 1914, just by its own, you know, pointlessness. Yeah, by the very way that it was set up. But because war happened, it dragged everyone who was, like, in particular Britain, loosely bound to it. It dragged them into the war that they didn't want. Yeah. And now, another point to look at is Russia itself and how... The Russian kind of desire to take the straits 
of the Dardanelles yeah. might have inspired a European war. And in some ways that's true, but if you look at the Russian episode, the Russian profile episode I did, and how the Russians were very concerned that the British were building dreadnoughts for the Ottomans, and how that would have resulted in mm. the Russians no longer having naval superiority in the Black Sea, I found that very interesting because, first of all, I was like, well, why are the British building a dreadnought for the Russian enemy? And as well as that, I thought, well, wow, if the if the Russian position is that disadvantaged, then surely they're going to act before that dreadnought yeah. comes. Now, in in the history that we know, these two dreadnoughts are stopped from going to the Ottomans, not because the British don't want the Ottomans to have them, because that will disadvantage the Russians, but because the British want every dreadnought possible. So Churchill orders that these dreadnoughts be snapped up and kept in the British fleet instead of being sent to the Ottomans. Yeah. But... If this hadn't happened, and if Russian planners had seen those Ottoman those Ottoman dreadnoughts appear and realised what the situation was now, they might have decided to act and declare war on the Ottomans before this could have happened. And if they had declared that they war... They probably wouldn't have declared it. They would have mobilised until the Ottomans <laughs> declared war. On oh, them. yeah, of That's course. probably what have happened. Yeah. Or the Ottomans would have been cheeky and just sat there going, I'm not declaring war. And they both just sit there looking at each other. Well, you declare war first so that everybody on my defensive yeah. pack comes in. And then you, you know... And then they, one of them listens to Bethman about how it's legally right to yeah, declare well, war Well, you should actually be <laughs> declaring it. So, uh, oh, fine, I'll declare it. I declare war. Oh, oh none I, of your defense. Defensive treaties are in play, so all of my defensive treaties come in, and now it's five versus one. How does that feel? Yeah, you like that, Ottomans? Yeah. <laughs> what, what? But an important thing to realize about that was that the Russian planners had realized that Britain was not going to support Russia in the event of a war with the Ottomans. The whole uh, Ottoman Straits question. If you remember the Bosnian crisis from 1908-09, where Bosnia-Herzegovina was annexed by Austria-Hungary mm-hmm. in exchange for... Austria's support for improved Russian terms in the Dardanelles. Now, this was an Austro-Russian agreement, and the fact that it deteriorated and resulted in uh, Russia being effectively bullied by the Central Powers is a strange result in itself. But what I took from this was the fact that the French and the British protested at Russia trying to get better terms in the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles, even at this late stage, was still a big issue to the French and British who recognised that if Russia did get increased terms and got better stance in that area, they would impress themselves upon first that area, then they would move to the Dardanelles and take Constantinople, and then they would move to the Mediterranean. Now, this is a gigantically exaggerated picture of what Russia was actually capable of, as will be demonstrated by its performance in the war. But the very fact that Russia was believed by France... And, and Britain to be capable of this is the only thing that mattered. Yeah. Because it meant yeah. that even in 1914, Russia's supposed allies feared what it was capable of. And f- I'd say, you know what it is, the Russians could talk the talk back in the day. They could still do it now. Mm. But I, it, it, when it actually comes to putting guns in people's hands and putting them out to fight, it's completely different. Yeah, well, especially the case of putting guns in people's hands. They weren't even capable of doing that because <laughs> the vast majority of Russian soldiers that were sent to the front didn't have boots or weapons, weapons. or even proper military clothing. So Russia recognized that it was going to have to if it did want a war with the Ottomans, which is the only which is the major war that people foresee coming in the foreseeable future if uh, a general European war yeah, didn't happen. If that was if that was, if that was the case, and if that this war is between the, this is the alternative history. Oh yeah, the definite, it, yeah. the definite alternative history, like for the First World War. But if this is the war that, if this is the war that did come about in the years after 
the failed assassination attempt on Franz Ferdinand, let's say. It's it's interesting, right? It's interesting to see that Churchill pulled back those dreadnoughts and then years later would plan Gallipoli as well. Yeah. That's, you know, he must have had it in for the Ottomans. Well, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It comes down to them seeing the Ottomans as the soft underbelly of the Central Powers. But, I mean, the very tactical idea of invading the Central Powers through the Ottomans is pretty... It's pretty stupid. Pretty stupid, yeah. yeah. And, and they ended up causing the downfall of the Ottomans through the invasion of the Middle East anyway and inspiring Arab nationalism that the Allies had absolutely no intention of fulfilling once the war was over. But that's another story. Anyway, yeah. what I'm trying to really get to here is the idea that the Russian planners knew from experience that they weren't going to be able to inspire Britain or France to support them in a war yeah. that was launched for the sole purpose of taking Constantinople. So, in order to get Constantinople, another war, a general kind of European war that resulted in from some other cause... Would was have the to... only way for them to get the, the Straits without yes. going out so, of their way for the Straits. Yes, so... In a kind of a weird logic, Russian planners thought that, well, if we make, say, say a European war happens for whatever reason, and we take Constantinople by way of, like, a sideshow, a military sideshow of that of that war, say, then that's the only way we can see it happening. Now, I'm sure France and Britain would object, but as their ally, they yeah, really would as be their, as their ally, yeah, and because it would be in the midst of another war, the called fog of war idea um, would be prevalent, and there wouldn't be much that Britain or France mm. could do. Mm. Unless, of course, the roles were completely reversed and we didn't know who Russia was at war with in the first place. But you kind of see my point. The yeah, whole, I, I absolutely see your point. The only real war that people could see coming... Wasn't just a reaction to an event. It yeah. was actually just in existence as a threat. Yeah, well, like they'd been at war with each other many, many times. Mm-hmm. And the whole question of the Dardanelles still existed and was wrapped up in the whole Balkan nationalism idea. Yeah. And um, yeah. so it could have been very possible that Serbia decided to launch a second war, let's just say, and against the Ottomans, and the whole Balkan League was resurrected, and Russia decided to join in. Even in the event of that, Russia may not have taken the bait for the simple fact that they didn't think Britain and France would support yeah. them. Yeah. So, I, what I take from this is that nothing was inevitable. This was what really annoyed me. I remember seeing someone someone linked me to a, a, a BBC thing about, about the outbreak of the First World War, and how um, how the Archduke, oh, he just managed to be killed and he wasn't supposed to be there and all that stuff. And, uh, oh, if only that hadn't happened, then um, then war wouldn't have happened. And then, and then like, five minutes later, the, the narrator was like, but even if the Archduke hadn't been killed, war was still inevitable. As soon as someone says war is inevitable, you know that they're, they're talking out of their behind. Because yeah. to state that war was still inevitable just suggests that, like, you already heard... Dear listener, the amount of like variables I just threw at you there, but like, come on, there is so many uh, possibilities mm. that don't involve war, mm-hmm. and even the fact, the very fact that war happened in the first place, I think, in nineteen fourteen after the July crisis, is a testament not to the fact that war was inevitable, but the very way that it happened just shows how close it was to not happening at yeah. all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that that really brings us to the end of alternate history and brings us to the end of the actual history podcast. I have to say again, you were fantastic. You were a workhorse and you really you you went out of your way to give us some of the, the most insightful 
podcasting I've ever had to listen to. Not yeah. that I've had to listen to it, I had the pleasure of listening I to it. I did tie him down and hold a gun to his head. And yeah, no, 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 no. I have, it was my soundtrack that I was listening to while I was playing a video game called Verdun, which is a first-person shooter set in the trenches of the First World War. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, when I was listening to that... Um, I'd be, you know, running across mm-hmm. the no man's land, getting hit by mortars, getting hit by, shot away, and at the same time listening to the intricacies of the, the negotiations and mm-hmm. the, the failed diplomacy, which is perfect for your podcast, <laughs> um, that, that led to it. And you um, and all the other soldiers would be like, is this the reason I'm here? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I was like, guys, you know the reason we're here, yeah? Some guy died and then we didn't talk to each other for ages and then we all decided to go to war. Yeah. So... I guess we really have to thank you for listening to us ramble on for the last yeah. hour or so. I don't know how this is going to edit down, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's been a pleasure talking with you, Zach. Yeah, um, it's been a pleasure as always, Sean. Yeah, so remember to be fit. Now, I I am going to run a competition. It's not a competition, but it's literally, I'm just going to pick names out of a hat. But it's not names out of a hat. We're going to pick names off of Facebook. If you, but it's not names out of Facebook. It's not, no, it is, though. <laughs> so, right, if you leave a comment on the link to this uh, episode on Facebook, what day is it now? Okay, on the 31st of August, so the last day of August, we're going to pick uh, a winner, and that winner will get uh, two copies of Verdun on Steam, which is currently retailing at nineteen ninety nine. So, unless you want to wait for a Steam sale... All you have to do to get in with a chance of winning this is just leave a comment saying, oh, Verdun, something something related to Verdun. So that we know something you, rela- you want yeah. it. Yeah. So you know we want it so we can differentiate from people who are just commenting on the on the podcast. And itself. now, why, why would people want to play Verdun? Well, Verdun is a very realistic... Like, I say realistic, it's still a video game, but they they represent... The charges and the back and forths of trench warfare very well. Uh, for the likes of games like Call of Duty or Battlefield, where you can really get away with just running around and doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. This, you stay in your trench and you go forward when you're told to go forward and you come back when you're told to come back. Uh, you know, you're running through trenches with bayonets. You really, it's close quarters combat with weapons that really aren't designed for close quarters combat. You're uh, you're trying to pick off people while they run across no man's land. You're trying to run across no man's land yourself. You spend the majority of the game dying. Uh, I feel like I've probably died a hundred times in that game and maybe only killed six people. Now, that's probably because I'm bad at games. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm taking the game literally and, you know, getting to a trench, waiting for the, the whistle to blow, and then running out with five or six guys across no man's land, hoping that one of us gets across to the either German or French, depending on which which battle you're in, mm-hmm. uh, get to their jump-off lines or get to their, their fallback lines and capture those trenches. Uh, it's, it's, you know, and the games last about an hour. Mm. So it's not like these condensed, you know, first-person shooters which are very quick and run inside of 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's and, not like take no prisoners combat. Yeah, and it's not that they're trying to... The objectives are like take a flag or or kill enough people. It's literally... Run across there and take that trench. Mm-hmm. And then if you have the momentum, you just keep going. So yeah. uh, it was released earlier, I think, uh, just the end of July. It came out for the Centenary. Uh, it's open beta, early access on Steam. So I don't know, you can avoid it as long as you want. But if you have the game key, which we are offering by leaving a comment about Verdun 
on the on the Facebook. Once we decide that you win, or once Sean decides that you win, we'll get in contact with yeah, you. Yeah, we will get in contact with you on the 31st. Uh, you have to have a Steam account, uh, and it's a multiplayer-only game, so you will also need a pretty good internet connection. So yeah. those are the requirements. I mean, it's graphically beautiful. If you have a fantastic computer, uh, absolutely go for it. Uh, and if not, uh, I will be on there playing... Uh, and I would absolutely be happy to play Verdun with any of you listeners that are also video gamers. Uh, <laughs> if you guys want to hop on there, we yeah. can storm the trenches as the Germans or the French together. Yeah, very good. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. So, so that that's uh, that's I don't know. I think that's I feel like that's the first time we've run a competition. But uh, it really I kind think, of is. Yeah. But uh, you know, with the centenary, I think it's. It's appropriate. I think it is appropriate. And plus, we're both we both love our video games, mm-hmm. so uh, it's something that we, I feel like it's it's appropriate for this uh, podcast. No, now definitely. I think we should move on to thank yous. Yes, uh, would you be able to get my phone? It's yeah, just like yeah. In, in the shelf there. Okay, so now is the time when I thank people for all their donations by name, not by amount, because I think that'd be kind of infringing yeah. upon their privacy so uh, if you all start sending like one cents you're not making your name okay <laughs> yeah those those 10 cent donations I just <laughs> they don't exist don't worry um, so we'll start first of all uh, Joanne Marin thank you very much for your donation on the 25th of June uh, Nicholas Stanley thank you very much for your donation on the 27th of June Michael Day thank you very much for your donation on the 7th of July Chris Sandys, thank you very much for your donation on the 23rd of July. Michael Cabral, thank you very much for your donation on the 24th of July. Uh, Michael P. McCormick, thank you very much for your donation on the 26th of July. Seamus Parle, thank you very much for your donation on the 26th of July again. Wow, that's a good day for me. Rohit Devan, I think that's how you pronounce your name. Thank you very much for your donation on the 31st of July. Alan Walker, thank you very much for your donation on the 8th of August. Uh, Karen Roth, thank you very much for your donation on the 8th of August. Finally, Jason Flower, thank you very much for your donation on the 14th of August. You are all wonderful people, and all those donations made such a difference to me, and they meant that I got to buy some new clothes. Actually, not really. I haven't bought new clothes for ages. What they it really meant... It was a great morale boost. It was a great morale boost, yeah. and it will all go towards my master's, which will make me a better person and podcaster. Okay, so, following all those thank yous, I just have one last thank you to make to you in general, the listener, the oh. whole generic thank you. Thank, thank you very yeah, much thank for... Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us for the past, oh, what are we, two, three years? Yeah. Four years? No. 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 <laughs> just make a massive jump. Ten years! <laughs> Thanks for that three decade of support. <laughs> yeah, okay, we've been, we've been together for two years plus. Um, since the since May, so thanks so very much for thank supporting you if us. you're a new listener, and thank you for being with us for the whole time. But I'd really like to thank you as well for your support for the July Crisis and for the Thirty Years War as well, because I went straight into it from one to the other. So thanks so much, guys. I I really am a a slave to my whims and a slave to this podcast at times. But knowing that you guys are there on the other end makes such a difference. So yeah. thank you so much. And keep on telling your friends, keep on spreading the word, because it's making a huge difference. And, and keep telling inanimate objects as well. Keep telling know? inanimate objects. Tell your pets, tell, tell, your, tell your grandparents. Yeah, explain what a podcast is to yeah. your grandparents, because that's always fun. Well, uh, you know what's going to happen? Grandparents are going to start knowing what podcasts are. Like, they're, the old people are getting younger. Oh, that's true, yeah. 
I suppose. <laughs> well, imagine, imagine our generation when we're grandparents. Anyway, oh, that's really it's scary. Be so good, so much. It's been an incredibly stressful past month and a bit, but it's also been absolutely amazing. In let's terms of... uh, let's end it the same way you end every other podcast. Yes. Uh, instead of saying thanks, let's do the and that's why we ended the podcast. Dun dun. Dun, dun. You know your little musical oh, yeah. <laughs> No, it was, more, it, it was more like dun, dun, dun. Those, like the way you ended each yeah. podcast was yeah. just so good. I did that I, on purpose. I was like, was okay, just like oh, I want to hear the next one. I want to hear the next one. This I, is what led Britain to take off its, sh- you know, the, <laughs> the sunglasses thing from it, uh, CSI. Oh god, oh that's what it was. That's what that little calling at the yeah. end. Yeah, I even felt. I even like cut it so that it would be perfectly it in was place. perfect yeah every time it was so good thank you yeah i even like got my voice trained to a degree so that it would come across perfectly in that form yeah yeah, yeah. It, oh, man. it worked really yeah you were in tune with the music oh like, i hope yeah. so yeah it was it, really it is my goal yeah. yeah so thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you all again very soon very soon Very soon. Very soon. (laughs) So, my name is Zach. And my name is Sean. And we'll see you all again in When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks. Once we, once you, once we, you. Yeah, just mention (laughs) someone. Once we, you, we, you. (laughs) Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.